Caligula, Part Two of the Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. Translated by Alexander Thompson and edited by T. Forrester. Caligula, Part Two. Thus far, we have spoken of him as a prince. What remains to be said of him bespeaks him rather a monster than a man. He assumed a variety of titles, such as Dutiful, the Pious, the Child of the Camp, the Father of the Armies, and the Greatest and Best Caesar. Upon hearing some kings, who came to the city to pay him court, conversing together at supper about their illustrious descent, he exclaimed, Aes Coranus Eto, Aes Basilius, let there be but one prince, one king. He was strongly inclined to assume the diadem, and change the form of government from imperial to regal, but being told that he far exceeded the grandeur of kings and princes, he began to arrogate to himself a divine majesty. He ordered all the images of the gods, which were famous either for their beauty or the veneration paid them, among which was that of Jupiter Olympius, to be brought from Greece, that he might take their heads off and put on his own having continued part of the Palatium as far as the Forum, and the Temple of Castor and Pollux being converted into a kind of vestibule to his house, he often stationed himself between the twin brothers, and so presented himself to be worshipped by all votaries, some of whom saluted him by the name of Jupiter Latialis. He also instituted a temple and priests, with choicest victims, in honour of his own divinity. In his temple stood a statue of gold, the exact image of himself, which was daily dressed in garments corresponding with those he wore himself. The most opulent persons in the city offered themselves as candidates for the honour of being his priests, and purchased it successively at an immense price. The victims were flamingos, peacocks, bustards, guinea-fowls, turkey and pheasant-hens, each sacrificed on their respective days. On nights when the moon was full, he was in the constant habit of inviting her to his embraces and his bed. In the daytime he talked in private to Jupiter Capitolinus, one while whispering to him, and another turning his ear to him. Sometimes he spoke aloud and in railing language, for he was overheard to threaten the god thus, Hi em anir, hi ego say, raise thou me up, o owl. Until being at last prevailed upon by the entreaties of the god, as he said, to take up his abode with him, he built a bridge over the temple of the deified Augustus, by which he joined the Palatium to the capital. Afterwards, that he might be still nearer, he laid the foundations of a new palace in the very court of the capital. He was unwilling to be thought or called the grandson of Agrippa, because of the obscurity of his birth, 
and he was offended if any one, either in prose or verse, ranked him amongst the Caesars. He said that his mother was the fruit of an incestuous commerce, maintained by Augustus with his daughter Julia, and not content with this vile reflection upon the memory of Augustus, he forbade his victories at Actium, and on the coast of Sicily, to be celebrated as usual affirming that they had been most pernicious and fatal to the Roman people. He called his grandmother Livia Augusta, Ulysses in a woman's dress, and had the indecency to reflect upon her in a letter to the Senate, as of mean birth, and descended, by the mother's side, from a grandfather who was only one of the municipal magistrates of Fondi. Whereas it is certain, from the public records, that Alphidius Lurco, held high offices at Rome. His grandmother Antonia, desiring a private conference with him, he refused to grant it, unless Macro, the prefect of the Praetorian Guards, were present. Indignities of this kind, and ill-usage, were the cause of her death. But something he also gave her poison. Nor did he pay the smallest respect to her memory after her death, but witnessed the burning from his private apartment. His brother Tiberius, who had no expectation of any violence, was suddenly dispatched by a military tribune sent by his order for that purpose. He forced Silenus, his father-in-law, to kill himself by cutting his throat with a razor. The pretext he alleged for these murders was that the latter had not followed him upon his putting to sea in stormy weather, but stayed behind with the view of seizing the city, if he should perish. The other, he said, smelt of an antidote, which he had taken to prevent his being poisoned by him, whereas Silenus was only afraid of being seasick, and the disagreeableness of a voyage, and Tiberius had merely taken a medicine for an habitual cough, which was continually growing worse. As for his successor Claudius, he only saved him for a laughing-stock. He lived in the habit of incest with all his sisters, and at table, when much company was present, he placed each of them in turns below him, whilst his wife reclined above him. It is believed that he deflowered one of them, Drusilla, before he had assumed the robe of manhood, and was even caught in her embraces by his grandmother Antonia, with whom they were educated together. When she was afterwards married to Cassius Longinus, a man of consular rank, he took her from him, and kept her constantly as if she were his lawful wife. In a fit of sickness, he by his will appointed her heiress both of his estate and the empire. After her death, he ordered a public mourning for her, during which it was capital for any person to laugh use the bath, or sup with his parents, wife, or children. Being inconsolable unto his affliction, he went hastily and in the night-time from the city, going through Campania to Syracuse, and then suddenly returned without shaving his beard or trimming his hair. Nor did he ever afterwards, in matters of the greatest importance, not even in the assemblies of the people or before the soldiers, swear any otherwise than by the divinity of Drusilla. The rest of his sisters he did not treat with so much fondness or regard. 
but frequently prostituted them to his catamites. He therefore the more readily condemned them, in the case of Aemilius Lepidus, as guilty of adultery, and privy to that conspiracy against him. Nor did he only divulge their own handwriting relative to the affair, which he procured by base and lewd means, but likewise consecrated to Mars the Avenger three swords which had been prepared to stab him, with an inscription setting forth the occasion of their consecration. Whether in the marriage of his wives, in repudiating them or retaining them, he acted with greater infamy, it is difficult to say. Being at the wedding of Caius Piso with Livia Oristilla, he ordered the bride to be carried to his own house, but within a few days divorced her, and two years after banished her, because it was thought that upon her divorce she returned to the embraces of her former husband. Some say that being invited to the wedding supper, he sent a messenger to Piso, who sat opposite to him, in these words, Do not be too fond with my wife, and that he immediately carried her off, Next day he published a proclamation importing that he had got a wife as Romulus and Augustus had done. Lolia Paulina, who was married to a man of consular rank in command of an army, he suddenly called from the province where she was with her husband, upon mention being made that her grandmother was formerly very beautiful, and married her, but he soon afterwards parted with her, interdicting her from having ever afterwards any commerce with man. He loved with the most passionate and constant affection Caesonia, who was neither handsome nor young, and was besides the mother of three daughters by another man, but a wanton of unbounded lasciviousness. Her he would frequently exhibit to the soldiers, dressed in a military cloak with shield and helmet, and riding by his side. To his friends he even showed her naked. After she had a child, he honoured her with the title of wife, in one and the same day declaring himself her husband, and father of the child of which she was delivered. He named it Julia Drusilla, and carrying it round the temples of all the goddesses, laid it on the lap of Minerva, to whom he recommended the care of bringing up and instructing her. He considered her as his own child, for no better reason, than her savage temper, which was such even in her infancy, that she would attack with her nails the face and eyes of the children at play with her. It would be of little importance, as well as disgusting, to add to all this an account of the manner in which he treated his relations and friends. As Ptolemy, King Juba's son, his cousin, for he was the grandson of Mark Antony by his daughter Selene, and especially Macro himself, and Enya likewise, by whose assistance he had obtained the empire, all of whom, for their alliance and eminent services, he rewarded with violent deaths. Nor was he more mild or respectful in his behaviour towards the senate. Some who had borne the highest offices in the government, he suffered to run by his litter in their togas for several miles together, and to attend him at supper, sometimes at the head of his couch, sometimes at his feet, with napkins. Others of them, after he had privately put them to death, he nevertheless continued to send for, as if they were still alive, 
and after a few days pretended that they had laid violent hands upon themselves. The consuls, having forgotten to give public notice of his birthday, he displaced them, and the Republic was three days without any one in that high office. A quaestor, who was said to be concerned in a conspiracy against him, he scourged severely, having first stripped off his clothes and spread them under the feet of the soldiers employed in the work, that they might stand the more firm. The other orders likewise he treated with the same insolence and violence. Being disturbed by the noise of people taking their places at midnight in the circus, as, as they were to have free admission, he drove them all away with clubs. In this tumult, above twenty Roman knights were squeezed to death, with as many matrons, with a great crowd besides. When stage plays were acted, to occasion disputes between the people and the knights, he distributed the money tickets sooner than usual, that the seats assigned to the knights might be all occupied by the mob. In the spectacles of gladiators, sometimes, when the sun was violently hot, he would order the curtains, which covered the amphitheatre, to be drawn aside, and forbade any person to be let out, withdrawing at the same time the usual apparatus for the entertainment, and presenting wild beasts almost pined to death, the most sorry gladiators, decrepit with age, and fit only to work the machinery, and decent housekeepers, who were remarkable for some bodily infirmity, sometimes shutting up the public granaries, he would oblige the people to starve for a while. He evinced the savage barbarity of his temper, chiefly by the following indications. When flesh was only to be had at a high price for feeding his wild beasts reserved for the spectacles, he ordered that criminals should be given them to be devoured. And upon inspecting them in a row, while he stood in the middle of the portico, without troubling himself to examine their cases, he ordered them to be dragged away from bald pate to bald pate. Of one person who had made a vow for his recovery to combat with a gladiator, he exacted its performance. Nor would he allow him to desist until he came off conqueror, and after many entreaties. Another, who had vowed to give his life for the same cause, having shrunk from the sacrifice, he delivered, adorned as a victim, with garlands and fillets, to boys who were to drive him through the streets, calling on him to fulfil his vow until he was thrown headlong from the ramparts. After disfiguring many persons of honourable rank, by branding them in the face with hot irons, he condemned them to the mines, to work in repairing the highways, or to fight with wild beasts, or tying them by the neck and heels in the manner of beasts carried to slaughter, would shut them up in cages, or saw them asunder. Nor were these severities merely inflicted for crimes of great enormity, but for making remarks on his public games, or for not having sworn by the genius of the emperor. He compelled parents to be present at the execution of their sons, and to one who excused himself on account of indisposition, he sent his own litter. Another he invited to his table immediately after he had witnessed the spectacle, and coolly challenged him to jest and be merry. He ordered the overseer of the spectacles and wild beasts to be scourged in fetters during several days successively in his own presence, and did not put him to death 
until he was disgusted with the stench of his putrefied brain. He burned alive, in the centre of the arena of the amphitheatre, the writer of a farce, for some witty verse which had a double meaning. A Roman knight, who had been exposed to the wild beasts, crying out that he was innocent, he called him back, and having had his tongue cut out, remanded him to the arena. Asking a certain person, whom he recalled after a long exile, how he used to spend his time, he replied with flattery, I was always praying the gods for what has happened, that Tiberius might die and you be emperor. Concluding, therefore, that those he had himself banished also prayed for his death, he sent orders round the islands to have them all put to death. Being very desirous to have a senator torn to pieces, he employed some persons to call him a public enemy, fall upon him as he entered the senate-house, stab him with their steles, and deliver him to the rest to tear asunder. Nor was he satisfied until he saw the limbs and bowels of the man, after they had been dragged through the streets, piled up in a heap before him. He aggravated his barbarous actions by language equally outrageous. There is nothing in my nature, said he, that I commend or approve so much as my adiatrepsia, inflexible rigour. Upon his grandmother Antonia's giving him some advice, as if it was a small matter to pay no regard to it, he said to her, Remember that all things are lawful for me. When about to murder his brother, whom he suspected of taking antidotes against poison, he said, See then an antidote against Caesar. And when he banished his sisters, he told them in a menacing tone that he had not only islands at command, but likewise swords. One of Praetorian rank having sent several times from Antichira, whither he had gone for his health, to have his leave of absence prolonged, he ordered him to be put to death, adding these words, Bleeding is necessary for one that has taken hell-bore so long, and found no benefit. It was his custom every tenth day to sign the lists of prisoners appointed for execution, and this he called clearing his accounts. And having condemned several Gauls and Greeks at one time, he exclaimed in triumph, I have conquered Gallo-Grecia! He generally prolonged the sufferings of his victims by causing them to be inflicted by slight and frequently repeated strokes, this being his well-known and constant order, strike so that he may feel himself die. Having punished one person for another, by mistaking his name, he said, he deserved it quite as much. He had frequently in his mouth these words of the tragedian, odorant, dum metuant. I scorn their hatred, if they do but fear me. He would often inveigh against all the senators without exception as clients of Sejanus, and informers against his mother and brothers, producing the memorials which he had pretended to burn, and excusing the cruelty of Tiberius as necessary, since it was impossible to question the veracity of such a number of accusers. He continually reproached the whole equestrian order 
as devoting themselves to nothing but acting on the stage and fighting as gladiators. Being incensed at the people's applauding a party at the Circensian Games in opposition to him, he exclaimed, I wish the Roman people had but one neck. When Tetrinius the highwayman was denounced, he said his persecutors too were all Tetrinius's. Five retiari, in tunics, fighting in a company, yielded without a struggle to the same number of opponents, and being ordered to be slain, one of them taking up his lance again, killed all the conquerors. This he lamented in a proclamation as a most cruel butchery, and cursed all those who had borne the sight of it. He used also to complain aloud of the state of the times, because it was not rendered remarkable by any public calamities. For while the reign of Augustus had been made memorable to posterity by the disaster of Varus, and that of Tiberius by the fall of the theatre at Fidenae, his was likely to pass into oblivion from an uninterrupted series of prosperity. And at times he wished for some terrible slaughter of his troops, a famine, a pestilence, conflagrations, or an earthquake. Even in the midst of his diversions, while gaming or feasting, this savage ferocity, both in his language and actions, never forsook him. Persons were often put to the torture in his presence, whilst he was dining or carousing. A soldier, who was an adept in the art of beheading, used at such times to take off the heads of prisoners, who were brought in for that purpose. At Putioli, at the dedication of the bridge which he planned, as already mentioned, he invited a number of people to come to him from the shore, and then suddenly threw them headlong into the sea, thrusting down with poles and oars those who, to save themselves, had got hold of the rudders of the ships. At Rome, in a public feast, a slave having stolen some thin plates of silver with which the couches were inlaid, he delivered him immediately to an executioner, with orders to cut off his hands and lead him round the guests, with them hanging from his neck before his breast, and a label signifying the cause of his punishment. A gladiator, who was practising with him, and voluntarily threw himself at his feet, he stabbed with a poniard, and then ran about with a palm branch in his hand, after the manner of those who are victorious in the games. When a victim was to be offered upon an altar, he, clad in the habit of the Popeye, and holding the axe aloft for a while, at last, instead of the animal, slaughtered an officer who attended to cut up the sacrifice. And at a sumptuous entertainment he fell suddenly into a violent fit of laughter, and upon the consuls, who reclined next to him, respectfully asking him the occasion. Nothing, replied he but that, upon a single nod of mine, you might both have your throats cut. Among many other jests, this was one. As he stood by the statue of Jupiter, he asked Apelles, the tragedian, which of them he thought was biggest. Upon his demurring about it, he lashed him most severely, now and then commending his voice, whilst he entreated for mercy as being well modulated, even when he was venting his grief. As often as he kissed the neck of his wife or mistress, he would say, So beautiful a throat must be cut. 
whenever I please. And now and then he would threaten to put his dear Sisonia to the torture, that he might discover why he loved her so passionately. In his behaviour towards men of almost all ages, he discovered a degree of jealousy and malignity equal to that of his cruelty and pride. He so demolished and dispersed the statues of several illustrious persons which had been removed by Augustus for want of room from the court of the capital into the Campus Martius that it was impossible to set them up again with their inscriptions entire and for the future he forbade any statue whatever to be erected without his knowledge and leave. He had thoughts, too, of suppressing Homer's poems. For why, said he, may not I do what Plato has done before me, who excluded him from his commonwealth? He was likewise very near banishing the writings and the busts of Virgil and Livy from all libraries, censuring one of them as a man of no genius and very little learning, and the other as a verbose and careless historian. He often talked of the lawyers as if he intended to abolish their profession. By Hercules, he would say, I shall put it out of their power to answer any questions in law, otherwise than by referring to me. He took from the noblest persons in the city the ancient marks of distinction used by their families as the collar from Torquatus, from Cincinnatus the curl of hair, and from Gnaeus Pompey the surname of Great, belonging to that ancient family. Ptolemy, mentioned before, whom he invited from his kingdom, and received with great honours, he suddenly put to death, for no other reason, but because he observed that upon entering the theatre, at a public exhibition, he attracted the eyes of all the spectators, by the splendour of his purple robe. As often as he met with handsome men, who had fine heads of hair, he would order the back of their heads to be shaved, to make them appear ridiculous. There was one Isius Proculus, the son of a centurion of the first rank, who, for his great stature and fine proportions, was called the Colossal. Him he ordered to be dragged from his seat in the arena, and matched with a gladiator in light armour, and afterwards with another completely armed, and upon his worsting them both, commanded him forthwith to be bound, to be led clothed in rags up and down the streets of the city, and after being exhibited in that plight to the women, to be then butchered. There was no man of so abject or mean condition, whose excellency in any kind he did not envy. The Rex Nemorensis, Having many years enjoyed the honour of the priesthood, he procured a still stronger antagonist to oppose him. One Porius, who fought in a chariot, having been victorious in an exhibition, and in his joy given freedom to a slave, was applauded so vehemently that Caligula rose in such haste from his seat that, treading upon the hem of his toga, he tumbled down the steps, full of indignation, and crying out, a people who are masters of the world pay greater respect to a gladiator for a trifle than to princes admitted amongst the gods, or to my own majesty here present amongst them. He never had the least regard either to the chastity of his own person or that of others. He is said to have been inflamed with an unnatural passion for Marcus Leptus Mnester, an actor in pantomimes 
and for certain hostages, and to have engaged with them in the practice of mutual pollution. Valerius Catullus, a young man of a consular family, bawled aloud in public that he had been exhausted by him in that abominable act. Besides his incest with his sisters, and his notorious passion for Pilaris, the prostitute, there was hardly any lady of distinction with whom he did not make free. He used commonly to invite them with their husbands to supper, and as they passed by the couch on which he reclined at table, examined them very closely, like those who traffic in slaves. And if any one from modesty held down her face, he raised it up with his hand. Afterwards, as often as he was in the humour, he would quit the room, send for her he liked best, and in a short time return with marks of recent disorder about them. He would then commend or disparage her in the presence of the company, recounting the charms or defects of her person and behaviour in private. To some he sent a divorce in the name of their absent husbands, and ordered it to be registered in the public acts. In the devices of his profuse expenditure, he surpassed all the prodigals that ever lived. Inventing a new kind of bath, with strange dishes and suppers, washing in precious unguents, both warm and cold, drinking pearls of immense value dissolved in vinegar, and serving up for his guests loaves and other victuals modelled in gold. Often saying that a man ought either to be a good economist or an emperor. Besides, he scattered money to a prodigious amount among the people, from the top of the Julian Basilica, during several days successively. He built two ships with ten banks of oars, after the Liburnian fashion, the poops of which blazed with jewels, and the sails were of various party colours. They were fitted up with ample bars, galleries, and saloons, and supplied with a great variety of vines and other fruit trees. In these he would sail in the daytime along the coast of Campania, feasting amidst dancing and concerts of music. In building his palaces and villas, there was nothing he desired to effect so much, in defiance of all reason, as what was considered impossible. Accordingly, moles were formed in the deep and adverse sea, rocks of the hardest stone cut away, plains raised to the height of mountains with a vast mass of earth, and the tops of mountains levelled by digging, and all these were to be executed with incredible speed, for the least remissness was a capital offence. Not to mention particulars, he spent enormous sums, and the whole treasures which had been amassed by Tiberius Caesar, amounting to two thousand seven hundred millions of sesterces within less than a year. Having therefore quite exhausted these funds, and being in want of money, he had recourse to plundering the people, by every mode of false accusation, confiscation, and taxation that could be invented. He declared that no one had any right to the freedom of Rome, although their ancestors had acquired it for themselves and their posterity, unless they were sons. For that none beyond that degree ought to be considered as posterity. 
When the grants of the divine Julius and Augustus were produced to him, he only said that he was very sorry they were obsolete and out of date. He also charged all those with making false returns who, after the taking of the census, had by any means whatever increased their property. He annulled the wills of all who had been centurions of the first rank, as testimonies of their base ingratitude, if from the beginning of Tiberius's reign they had not left either that prince or himself their heir. He also set aside the wills of all others, if any person only pretended to say that they designed at their death to leave Caesar their heir. The public, becoming terrified at this proceeding, he was now appointed joint heir with their friends, and in the case of parents with their children, by persons unknown to him. Those who lived any considerable time after making such a will, he said, were only making game of him, and accordingly he sent many of them poisoned cakes. He used to try such causes himself, fixing previously the sum he proposed to raise during the sitting, and after he had secured it, quitting the tribunal. Impatient of the least delay, he condemned by a single sentence forty persons, against whom there were different charges, boasting to Caesonia, when she awoke, how much business he had dispatched while she was taking her midday sleep. He exposed to sale by auction the remains of the apparatus used in the public spectacles, and exacted such biddings and raised the prices so high that some of the purchasers were ruined and bled themselves to death. There is a well-known story told of Aponius Saturninus, who, happening to fall asleep as he sat on a bench at the cell, Caius called out to the auctioneer not to overlook the praetorian personage who nodded to him so often. And accordingly the salesman went on, pretending to take the nods for tokens of assent, until thirteen gladiators were knocked down to him at the sum of nine millions of sesterces, he being in total ignorance of what was doing. End of Caligula Part 2 Recording by Andrew Coleman